Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we do give you praise, honor, and glory for being a God who has not left us with subjective feelings, but have given us the objective word of God. And Lord, we do thank you for that. Tonight I ask that you would speak through even somebody like me, that you would open the minds and the, the hearts of the saints that listen to this on the internet or that are here tonight, so that we may be better equipped to be about your great commission, and also that we may contend earnestly for the faith. Lord, I ask that everything I would say would be pleasing in your sight and in your ears. And Lord, I ask that you would be with us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, let's start simply. What is apologetics? Where does the term come from? I love defining terms. I think it always helps us learn the subject matter. Apologetic comes from the Greek word apologia, which means apology. We see this actually, the the verb form in Acts chapter 26, uh, verse 1 and verse 2. That is where uh, Paul is speaking before King Agrippa. We actually see the verb form. The verb form, here's a deponent verb, it's apologeomai. And he is given a reasoned defense there before Agrippa. And you'll notice I, had a, I was tired when I put this together, so I was a little slap happy. You might say Paul gave a apologetic. R, 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 sorry, okay, it's, that's bad. All right, so that's, that's where it comes from. Now, this does not mean, by the way, we are studying how to apologize to people. All right, I tell sometimes people at the gym, they ask me, well, what are you doing? What are you teaching? I say apologetics. And many times they're not believers, and they always look at me kind of quizzically, like, well, that sounds great. You're teaching people how to apologize. That's always what they think. But we're not doing that at all. In fact, apologetics is the reason defense of the Christian faith. And here's an important distinction that I want you to see. Our faith is more than mere reason. If it were mere reason, we would be rationalists. But here's what I want you to realize. Our faith is reasonable. Okay, there's a tension there, isn't there? Yes, we can't sit in a corner like the rationalists claim by ourselves without any revelation from God and reason our way to all truth. But at the same time, we are rational people and the revelation comes to us in a rational manner. Okay, now let me lay out the biblical case for apologetics. I want you, just in case you run across another believer, perhaps, or an unbeliever that says you shouldn't be about this task, I want to give you the biblical ammunition that says, yes, you should be about Uh, the task of apologetics and defending your faith. I'm going to start actually in the Old Testament. Believe it or not, the first apologetic task occurred in the garden. And here we see in Genesis 3.1b, I actually have here Satan is trying to tempt Adam and Eve. And he's tempting Eve here and he says, Indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now right away, I just want to point out this term any. It actually comes from machal. And in Hebrew, this is actually a preposition and an adjective strung together, and it literally means from every or all. Now, why is that significant? Well, notice what he's actually saying here. Has God said that you can't eat from every or all trees in the garden? That's outrageous. Well, what did God actually say? There was only one tree that they couldn't eat of. So he's distorting the prohibition. Satan was trying to distort God's prohibition and make Adam and Eve think it was unreasonable. So right away, Eve has to be engaged in setting the serpent straight. This is what she says. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, this is Genesis 3-2, but from the fruit of the tree, notice the definite article, the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So she set him straight. But, of course, later on, he says, oh, yeah, well, 
um, God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll actually know the difference between good and evil, and you'll be like God. And they go, okay, we'll eat. <laughs> so this apologetic didn't go too far, did it? Right? They did fail, but she did engage in apologetics. All right. Now, let me show you. I'm going to skip. There's a lot in the Old Testament we could get into, but let me show you the New Testament for the sake of time. 1 Peter 3.15, and technically I have part of 16 in here. Listen to what Peter says. He's asking in context people to follow the sufferings of Christ, and he says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. And there comes our term. It's the noun, apologia, to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So here we see a mandate actually to give a defense. We have Paul. This was prescriptive. This is descriptive down here, Acts 19.8. Paul is, in fact, in the synagogue of Ephesus, and this is what he says. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So we see that reasoning and persuading is part of the apologetic task. I just read an email today, and the email is actually old, but there's a church in the local community that says the Christian should never be about reasoning or showing a rational explanation for the Christian faith, but rather we should demonstrate love. And again, that is uh, not what the Scriptures are calling us to. Okay, The Scriptures call us, yes, to be loving, but the message we proclaim must be a rational message that comes from the Scriptures. Otherwise, are, what are we really trying to do when we're proclaiming the Gospel? Are we trying to show people how loving we are or how great Jesus is and what a sinner they are? See, that's actually the message, right? And so we can have people that don't know anything about the gospel be loving, and it won't help anybody, right? So we have to reason and persuade, just as Paul does here in Ephesus. Now here, Jude writes this. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which is once for all handed down to the saints. So we see the clear Biblical admonition that we should be about this. It's an exhortation to make a defense for everyone who asks. Now, there's three main approaches to apologetics, and they've been around Christendom for quite some time. And I'm going to be laying out now what model I'm going to have us use and why. I want you to be aware of what the debate is about. The first type is called classical apologetics. This is where philosophical arguments for God's existence are emphasized before turning to the specific case for Christian revelation claims. Okay, Now, this is the model that I'm going to be using. All right? And I'll be defending this model here. The, the next type is the evidential apologetics, where empirical arguments about the life, miracles, death, and resurrection of Christ are presented as probabilistic proofs. Now, I like this, and we're actually going to use these arguments as well, but my model, it's not mine, it's the classical apologetic model, it actually goes further. It starts with proving the existence of God, and then it actually uses evidential arguments as well. So we're going to basically cover that as well. All right. Now, here's the weakest, I think, in my opinion. It's called presuppositional apologetics. And the proponents here argue that belief in Jesus Christ must be presupposed, and from that vantage point, non-theistic assumptions are proven to be fallacious. And I'll explain to you in a couple of slides here what I think the weakness of that approach is. Now, What's the primary difference in the the three approaches? Well, classical apologetics differ from evidential and presuppositional apologetics primarily in the area of general revelation. Classical or Thomistic, it's called Thomistic. I just wanted you to be aware of that term because it's named technically after Thomas Aquinas. Okay, So sometimes you might see it called that. 
So Thomistic apologetics holds to the notion that general revelation is indeed biblical and can lead people to some true knowledge about God. Now, first of all, let's define general revelation again. I'm always grateful Bob and Ryan and Carl do a good job of doing that, but let's do it again, make sure everybody's on the same page. General revelation is what we can know about God through the created order, okay? Whereas special revelation is what we know about God through the Word of God, okay? Through His revealed Word. Now, notice I have it highlighted here or underlined that we can know some true things. We can't know all things about God, and we can't know as much from general revelation as we can from special revelation, but certainly we can know some true knowledge about God. It is also true, all right? So what we should conclude is this. We therefore can conclude that what the Bible actually says about general revelation should determine which model of apologetics we adopt. If the Bible says that there is, in fact, revelation about God through nature, then we should believe it. (laughs) In fact, we're bound to believe it, and therefore we should present that as argumentation. If we don't see that in the Scriptures, let's jettison the classical approach. That's why I, I think it's very simple. Well, let's look at the evidence then. The case for general revelation in the Scriptures, I'm going to start in the Old Testament. I want to show you that it's all over the place. In Psalm 19, 1 through 2, the Psalter writes, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So here we can have knowledge of God through the created order. Now, the main text that we're going to be looking at in the New Testament, the granddaddy of them all, is Romans 1.18 through 20, all right? And Paul starts off in Romans 1.18, he's indicting both Jew and Gentile under the wrath of God. All people are sinners, and he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Notice, There are things that can be known about God. In fact, it's evident within them. And I want to talk about this within because it actually is a preposition in the Greek. It's N. In the Greek, this preposition has a wide semantic range. In other words, it can be translated to, it can be translated in, among, within. And the only way we can tell often how these prepositions are used is context. All right? Now, I've done some research today, and I think within is probably a good bet. But realize, if it's within, then we're talking something about the conscience. Okay? But if it's translated among, then it's talking about the general revelation. I just want you to be aware of that. All right? So the way we translate that, uh, part, or that uh, preposition is important. All right? Now, I think within is good because Paul ends up in chapter 2 talking about the conscience and therefore, I think it's within context to say it's within them. He's talking about the conscience. But here's the important thing. Here's a causal for. Always ask yourself, what's it there for, right? It's like a therefore. And what we should do is say, okay, this is causal. Why do they know something about God? Well, because God made it evident to them, all right? Friends, we don't have knowledge of God because we're just swell people or because it happened by accident. But our faith is a revealed faith. Okay, God has chosen to reveal himself, and if he had not chosen to do so through the general or the special, we would know nothing of him. Okay, but he's chosen to reveal himself. So this underlying portion tells us that God is merciful, and he's actually chosen to reveal himself to his creation. Now, it continues in verse 20, and the case for 
general revelation to me gets even more clear. It says for and another causal for, I believe, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Notice the three things we can know from the general revelation. We can know his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. In fact, they're clearly seen. Okay, it's not obscure. We can clearly see these things so much so that all are without excuse. All right. So the old argument, what about the poor, innocent aborigine who lives in the backwoods and has never heard anything about God? You know what? According to the Bible, there is no one innocent. Okay, there is no one that has an excuse. None of us as human beings respond positively to the light that we've been given. So all of us are condemned, whether Jew or Gentile. The Jews had the oracles of God, but the Gentiles had the light of creation. And everyone ran away from God's holiness and his light that they were given because their deeds were dark and evil. Okay, that's the idea here. So everyone is without excuse. Now, that tells me, by looking at those passages, we can know some true things about God from general revelation. So let me give you the case for classical apologetics. And I'm going to first of all start off by telling you the weakness of the other types. First of all, the weakness of evidential apologetics is this. Number one, it uses historical evidence like the resurrection, which is good. I don't want you to think that's a bad thing. We're going to use that same evidence, okay? This is a good thing, but there's a big but coming, okay? But it fails to prove a theistic worldview where miracles are possible. Now, I'm going to actually revert back to some logic. Don't don't worry about trying to determine if it's valid or invalid. I'm going to show you... So a categorical syllogism here, two of them actually. All right, now here's what I want you to think about. You're on the street, you hold to a theistic worldview, and you're witnessing to somebody who holds an atheistic worldview, and you're going to use the resurrection as evidence of the Christian faith, right? Now think about an atheistic worldview. In their worldview, premise one, miracles are not possible. Premise two, the resurrection is a miracle. Premise three, the resurrection is not possible. Okay, that's what they're thinking. And yet you're proclaiming a risen Lord. All right. So what I'm arguing about is what we want to do is get people to a theistic worldview where miracles are possible. The resurrection is a miracle and therefore the resurrection is possible. Okay, that's what I argue we do. Right. And remember, God is the one alone who can convict the heart. The Holy Spirit alone is the one who regenerates so that people can believe. But God uses means and he uses good arguments. And we're going to use the best arguments, knowing that God is going to honor them and save the elect through them. Let me show you the weakness of presuppositional apologetics. And you'll recall an informal fallacy from last week. It begs the question it sets out to enter. Look at my diagram here. It's circular, isn't it? Think about it. A presuppositionalist, again, says they, you have to start with the presupposition that Jesus is Lord or God in order to be about the apologetic task. Well, that's the exact thing we're trying to prove, right? We're talking to people who don't believe that. So think about the circular reasoning here. Jesus says the Bible's true. The Bible says Jesus is true. And I just put in here, Jesus is God. That's one true thing about him. But it just goes in circles. Jesus says the Bible's true. The Bible says Jesus is true. And it just goes like that. Well, what we want to do in the apologetic task is realize that you and I believe that, but the person that we're witnessing to doesn't. You see what I'm saying? So what we're going to do is we're going to break into that circle and supply evidence right in the beginning so that we may persuade and reason with people. Okay? That's what we're going to be doing. Just like Paul did in Ephesus. Now I'm going to show you the case for classical apologetics. And I looked at this slide and it actually saddened me because it shows the depravity of our nation and the world today. Uh, Classical apologetics seeks to use the best arguments available 
to move people to a theistic worldview for the purpose of being able to teach them the scriptures. That's the ultimate goal, you guys. We want to pull out the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? That's our goal. But let me show you what saddened me. I realized in the 1700s, think about it, we're going to have to start back here now. In other words, epistemology is the fancy word for the study of knowledge. In the 1700s, you could start with people just talking to them about the Bible. In the predominant view, worldview among people back then was that the Bible was, in fact, the word of God. Even if they didn't believe it, there was respect for it. And you could start there. Well, in the early 20th century, you probably had to start here, okay, proving a theistic worldview that God exists. And nowadays, I think you probably have to start here, okay, because people don't even know that you can know truth. They don't even believe that you can know truth. So here's what we want to do. This is what we're going to We're going to prove that we can know truth. We're going to do that tonight. Then we're going to prove that God exists as true. And when we've done that, then we're going to prove that, in fact, the gospel is true because Jesus in Mark 1.15 commanded everyone to repent and believe the gospel. And it's at that point that salvation occurs. But think about it. If we're preaching the gospel here, and yet we've got people stuck back here, they don't even believe that truth is even there. You see what I'm saying? We've got a lot of ground to cover because of the depravity of our culture. But yet, with God's grace... He does save. And again, the ultimate goal is to be able to use the gospel, the word of God, which convicts people of sin, righteousness, and judgment through the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, let me give you a brief history of the battle for truth. What I want to accomplish here is I want to show you where the battle has been since the Reformation because I want you to get some context of where we are. How did we get into this mess of postmodernism? And I think by looking at where we've come from, It'll enlighten us about how we answer the question of the postmodern generation. Can we know truth? And what I want to do is I want to start with the Reformation. And think about this. On October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther pins up his 95 theses, and it's really a rejection wholesale of Catholic doctrine, what he is primarily reacting against, though, is the doctrine of the papacy, where they believe that the Pope is the ultimate authority. What the Reformation is primarily concerned with is what is the ultimate authority. Is it Scripture or is it the papacy? But realize that both sides, even though we disagree with Catholics, both sides are still believing that there's truth and that you can know it. Okay? You see that? Now, let's, and I'm just bringing you down real quickly. Think about in the year 2009. Now you're dealing with people that don't even believe that there is such a thing as truth or that if truth is there, you can't access it. That's how far society and the world has slid. Okay? We're living in the last days, aren't we? People don't even believe that there's truth out there. All right? So I just wanted to point that out. So again, in the Reformation, the big debate was about sola scriptura. Are the scriptures the final authority? The Catholics were saying, no, the Pope can speak ex cathedra. He sits in the seat of Moses in the apostolic succession of Peter, and he can speak for God. And so we have a modern-day apostle through the Pope. The Reformers were saying, no, no, no. It's the word of God alone that's inerrant. Well, I put the Council of Trent on here because I want you to think about something. I think the Reformers did such a good job at proving their case that the word of God was the final authority that at the Council of Trent the Catholics had to bolster their position that they, in fact, had the Word of God 
and they actually canonized the apocryphal books. Now, if you guys remember what the apocryphal books are, they're the books that are called hidden books. They don't really belong in the Bible. They were written during the 400-year intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. Okay? Now, I know that they're, and I'm actually going to prove this later on, that they're, in fact, not part of the canon, but the Catholics had to do that to back up and support some of their wayward doctrines, namely purgatory. But again, what I want you to see is there was a presupposition that there was truth out there and you could know it. They were just trying to come up with a source uh, for ammunition. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, what happens then after the Council of Trent in 1618, there's something called the Thirty Years' War. And I'm going to explain this. The only reason I'm getting into this is because it sets up the conditions which allows the Enlightenment period to come along. Okay? So what's the Thirty Years' War all about? Well, in 1618... Protestants in Bohemia actually rebel against the Catholics, and we have a giant struggle between Catholics and Protestantism inside Europe, and they are fighting one another. But what starts as a religious war soon denigrates and ends up being a secular war as well because there's two families that are basically vying for control of all of the Holy Roman Empire. The Habsburgs, which originally started in Austria, They now have King Charles at the time of the Thirty Years' War on the throne in Spain. The family, through marriage, had gone elsewhere, and they were in Spain. And the Habsburg family is trying to wrestle control of all of Europe from the Bourbon family of France. So you basically have Germans and French that are vying for control for all of Europe. So what starts out as a religious struggle ends up engulfing the whole area because secularists get involved as well. But at the end of the Thirty Years' War, who is blamed for all the bloodshed? And it was bad bloodshed. In some territories, four-fifths of the population died. But who's blamed by the majority of people? The religious types. Okay? The religious people are blamed for, for all of the fighting. And so this creates the vacuum by which the Enlightenment comes into place because what people are saying is, why should we stick around and, and try to learn these religious dogmas from the Lutherans, the Protestants, and the Catholics. After all, all it leads to is fighting and desolation. And what we'll do is, through our own rationality and reason, we'll come to all truth and know things about God our own. We don't need these dogmas from organized religion. That's kind of the mindset. In fact, let me read you a quote from Justo uh, Gonzalez. He wrote a book called The Story of Christianity. It's volume two of his history. And this is what he says about the average feeling on the street regarding people who were disenchanted with Protestantism and Catholicism. He said, Why be concerned about details of Christian doctrine that produce nothing but quarrels and prejudice when natural reason, a faculty common to all human beings, can answer the fundamental questions regarding God and human nature? Would it not be much more profitable to construct a quote-unquote natural religion on that basis and to leave matters of detail And all of that only claimed revealed authority to the credulous and fanatical. Hence, the 17th and 18th centuries were characterized by doubts regarding the traditional dogmas of both Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. People were fed up with it. And this is what brings in secular rationalism. And the reason why I'm going to bring up rationalism and empiricism is because I want you to see that postmodernism is a reaction against it. So let's talk about rationalism. A man named Spinoza and Leibniz, Uh, these are men who are founders. We're going to look at their slides in a minute. But rationalism and empiricism both make up the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is a reaction against these religious types, like we would be. Hopefully we wouldn't be 
creating wars, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, it's a reaction. So the Enlightenment is a reaction against the, the dogmas of organized religion. And we have a man that comes at the back end of the Enlightenment named Immanuel Kant. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you that Immanuel Kant synthesizes between the rationalists of the Enlightenment and the empiricists of the Enlightenment, and he comes up with postmodernism, which is with us today. That's how we get here. Okay? Now I'm going to show you all this, how it happens in these slides, because I want you to feel equipped to be able to answer the objections of rationalists, empiricists, and postmoderns. Okay? Does that make sense? All right? Now, Romanticism also uh, is in here as well. But what I want you to realize is we don't have time to get into it. And I'm going to actually have Bob talk a little bit about it in our discussion time. Because Hegel, think about it this way, you guys. Kant is actually the cause that leads to what we see as postmodernism today in the emerging church. Hegel is the engine that drives those movements. And it's actually in Bob's book, which is called The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. It's actually going to be coming out in April. And I'm getting this on the Internet because I think it's the most important book on the emerging church to date because it gets at the root cause of it. Okay? So the, the Hegelian romanticist idea is what actually ends up driving postmodernism. So with that, let me show you some key Enlightenment figures. And what I want to do is show you how postmodernism came about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start teaching you about some of the rationalists who were in the Enlightenment. And I'm going to start with a man named Benedict Spinoza. He is a rationalist. He is born of a Jewish woman in 1632 in Amsterdam. And he is a smart cookie. There's no question about it. But he makes a lot of critical errors. In fact, he's actually a a pantheist. He believes in something called creation ex dio rather than uh, ex nihilo. Now, what you and I believe as Christians, as theists, is that God created all things ex nihilo. In Genesis 1.1, God, it's very clear, there's a Hebrew verb used, bara. Okay, and bara literally means creation out of nothing. In fact, that verb is never used in the whole Old Testament of a human being doing creation because every time you and I create, we're creating out of existent stuff, stuff that God already made. God alone is the God who creates bara out of nothing. Okay? He's the only one. But look at what Spinoza believes. Spinoza believes in creation ex Deo, which means out of God. So rather than from nothing, the creation is part of God. God is the creation. So what that does then is it leads to this anti-supernaturalism. Why? Because there's nothing beyond nature. Because nature's God, you see? So that's what creates all the problems. Let me show you some of his works. He had two works. Now, these aren't even important to remember, but I just want to, the, the important thing is what they taught. Theologica, Politicus, and uh, Tractatus, Politicus. It doesn't matter. Here's what they taught. They taught the ideas of rationalism and anti-supernaturalism. Okay, they were rationalistic and anti-supernatural. Again, to Spinoza, the idea was that everything was God. So the laws of nature that you saw every day, there was nothing behind that because that was God. So if you try to get behind the laws of nature, you're getting behind God himself, right? Because that is God. So there are not, there is nothing supernatural. So he denied everything you know, supernatural, and that is a direct attack on the scriptures, where we have to believe in things like the resurrection, right? All right. So he taught, number one, miracles are impossible. Two, he came up with axioms without observation. Remember that term a priori? 
A priori means deductive reasoning, doesn't it? Deductive reasoning is where we don't look at observation. We just know things because they're in our mind. All right? This man is teaching that human beings can sit in a corner and reason to all truth. And he's denying all the supernatural things that are in the Bible. That's the big problem with Spinoza. He had a self-defeating deterministic system of natural law. Again, everything that exists is God. Okay, everything that you see, the table would be God, you'd be God, everything's God. Okay, so nothing is beyond the laws of nature and it's all determined. Now, what's the problem with his reasoning is it's self-refuting. And what I'm going to show you, and this is encouraging to me, and it should be encouraging to you, that all of these supposedly brilliant people all make incredibly dumb errors. Okay, and you can easily refute them. Think about this. If everything is determined, so is the view that determinism is wrong, right? Because if everything is determined, meaning the definition of determinism, in other words, if everything is determined, that de- two things. Determinism would be the idea that determinism is true, is determined, and the idea that determinism is not true is determined. Well, that's A and not A at the same time in the same relationship. It's, it's absurd. So it actually is self-refuting. All right. And all of the arguments that you'll see from the great thinkers are self-refuting. All right. In fact, a guy like Albert Einstein even ends up making a critical error in the general relativity when he divides with zero. So I'm just pointing this out that these incredibly brilliant people end up making errors and they end up making errors where you and I can easily refute them. So take heart and take courage with that. All right. Now, what I want you to see is that this man's ideas are borrowed by another rationalist in the Enlightenment. And this guy is the granddaddy of them all, named Gottfried Leibniz. He's born in 1646 in Germany. He is a sharp cookie. In 1676, he co-invents calculus, um, actually, with Isaac Newton. Okay, so this guy's no dummy. But again, you're going to see him make outrageous errors. All right, so Leibniz, he borrows a lot of his ideas from Spinoza, but in fact, he's a theist. Okay, he's heavily influenced by Spinoza's ideas. But here he is the one, Leibniz, who comes up with the main Enlightenment idea. And the main idea of the Enlightenment, and I'm talking specifically about the rationalists, this is the main idea. If you get this, you'll get the the rationalist Enlightenment people. Humans are born with an innate storehouse of ideas waiting only to be activated. Okay? So what he's teaching is that every one of us is born with an inherent storehouse of ideas. We have all knowledge in our mind. And all you and I have to do is we can sit in a corner somewhere and try to activate all knowledge by just thinking it out. So in other words, we're not dependent upon general revelation or special revelation. It's all up here. And so we can rationalize our way to all truth and we don't need God. You see how offensive this is? This is man shirking the shackles of God, saying, I'll reason to all truth myself. All right? That's where the idea comes from. So, of course, he's an anti-supernaturalist as well. And this is very problematic to biblical Christianity because Leibniz's view allows for humans to reason in a corner to all truth, irrespective of general or special revelation. That is, by definition, rationalism. Okay? Now, let me put up a passage here, and I want you to see in Titus 1.15 how there is a huge contradiction between what the Apostle Paul writes regarding the mind of the unbeliever and what Leibniz believes. Paul says in Titus 1.15, he says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are what? Are defiled. 
You see, the biblical picture is that original sin is so pervasive that it infects every part of us. Even our minds are defiled and incapable of proper thought, according to the scriptures. But Leibniz is saying, no, we have an innate storehouse of ideas and we can reason to all truth. Do you see the clash? And so this is completely anti-biblical, the rationalists within the Enlightenment. And he goes on to say here, Paul says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. That is a devastating rebuke against any who think that they can please God on their own efforts. And in fact, Paul gives the answer in Titus 3.5 that what we actually need is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit in order to do anything pleasing to God. And that is, in fact, a promise of the new covenant made sure through the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, now... What I want you to see, I showed you the rationalist side of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment has two sides, rationalists and empiricists. And they both attack the Bible's miracles, but for different reasons. Now I'm going to be addressing the empiricists. And the whole reason I'm doing this is because I want you to see how Kant develops his ideas that lead to postmodernism so you can understand where we are now. That's the whole reason, okay? Now let me bring up a man named David Hume. David Hume was born in Edinburgh in Scotland in 1711, And he calls himself an agnostic. However, I believe he's an atheist. He is the one who is known for empirical skepticism. He claimed to suspend all judgment about the existence of God and other metaphysical questions. In reality, he claims to say, well, I have no judgment one way or the other. He's trying to be agnostic. He's actually an atheist. In fact, all of the modern-day atheists borrow their arguments from Hume. Okay, He's an atheist in disguise. But let me show you what he taught here. He believed that unless something is based on sense experience, it is not valid or true. Okay, So now the rationalists are saying everything is in our mind and we can reason without observation. The empiricists like David Hume are saying, no, the only way to come to truth is to observe it. All right, But they're both attacking the Bible and the supernatural elements of the Bible because, remember, David Hume couldn't observe the resurrection. And if you can't observe the resurrection, it's not true. So he's attacking the miracles of the Bible. The rationalists are attacking the miracles of the Bible, but they're for different reasons. Okay? So I just want you to see that. So, oh, here, here's something I want to point out. We're going to talk about this next week again. Hume tried to get around a necessary cause in two ways. Why do we need a necessary cause? Well, remember the law of causality that we talked about? Every effect must have a cause. Well, what that tells us is that there must be something that's uncaused for anything to exist today. And we're claiming that it's God, aren't we? Well, he tries to get around a necessary cause because he knows the implication of it is God. So he's trying to shirk off the existence of God. And the way he does it is in two ways. And we're going to refute them again next week because they're just the same atheists today are just using his arguments. The first one is an infinite series of causes. Okay, so he believes that there's cause effect, cause effect that goes on to infinity in the past. But you and I can refute that easily. The answer to that is an infinite regression is tantamount to affirming that existence in the series arises from non-existence since no cause in the series has a real ground for existence. In other words, friends, if you believe in an infinite regression of cause and effect that goes on to infinity, right, you really have non-existence at all because you would never get to now. You have an infinite regression of cause and effect. So in order to get to the effect that we are today, You'd have to have a cause before that and a cause before that and a cause. And you'd go on forever. You'd never get to now. Okay, so it's irrational. You never have anything that's grounding existence. It's a fancy way of saying nothing did something. Okay, but he's dressing up it in fancy language 
that seems confusing to Buffalo people. That's all he's doing. All right. Now, let me show you another way he tried to get around it. And we're going to deal with this next week as well. He tried to say that chance can create. Well, the answer to that is chance has no being. Has anybody ever seen a piece of chance? Does chance have the ability to do anything? No, it's nothing. Chance has no being. It's merely a word that describes mathematical probability. And we'll talk more about that next week. So what he's trying to do is dress up ways for nothing to do something so he doesn't have to have a God. But the bottom line is, this is an Enlightenment figure who's on the empiricist side who's again attacking the authority of the Bible. Now, this is where we come to a man named Immanuel Kant. And what you're going to see is Immanuel Kant is going to make a synthesis between the rationalists and the empiricists that leads to postmodernism. He's cutting it in half, okay? He's cutting it in half. He's taking the rationalist idea and he's destroying that. And he's going to kind of destroy the empiricists and he's going to come up with middle ground, all right? Let me show you what he does. Immanuel Kant was born in 1724 in East Prussia. And in 1781, he wrote a book called, the, it was a critique of pure reason. I think that's what he called it. And that is where he comes up with this synthesis. So let me show you what he's synthesizing between. It's between the rationalists, remember, like Leibniz, who say people have an innate knowledge. Remember, we can know all things a priori without even observing. We can know all things because we have it in our head, the imaginary storehouse, all right? Then on the other side are the empiricists like Hume who say only what one observes is real. It's only through observation. If I can't observe it, it's not true. If I can't put it in a test tube, it doesn't exist. It's not worth anything. It's nothing. It's, it's not valid, Okay. So here is what Kant does with that. He takes a synthesis, and this synthesis is what leads to postmodernism that we're seeing today. He reasoned, first of all, humans do not have innate ideas as rationalists claim. And I agree with him there. Friends, we're not built with an, in, an inherent storehouse of ideas within our mind that just need to be activated through correct thinking. Okay? So he's right to reject that. But now here's where it gets bad, because listen to what he does now with the empiricists. He says humans do not have access to the noumenal or the real world through observations as empiricists claim. Okay, now right there he's denying access to what? Reality. He's denying access to reality. We don't have access to it. And here comes the rub. So what do we have access to? Here's his synthesis. Humans are instead stuck in the phenomenal world. This is the way the world merely appears to us. And the key word there is to us. This is where relativism comes in. Because none of us have access to reality, we only see the way the world appears to us because of our, um, our biases, our faulted uh, sense perceptions. You and I never have access to the way the real world is. There's reality out there somewhere. But you and I are stuck in the way the world looks. And so you might see something as green, and I say, well, I think it's pink, and you say it's true, and I say it's false. You have your truth, I have my truth. That's what he's starting, you see? And it's a reaction against the Enlightenment, all right? That, and so that's where it all comes from. Now, what I want to show you again is I, every time I have a bad idea, I like to show you an answer to it right away, and I'm going to be doing this later on. But the answer to Kant's argument is as follows. Kant's argument is self-refuting, because it asserts that reality cannot be known. His statement itself, however, is a statement about reality. Why should we take Kant seriously? What Immanuel Kant is saying is the way the real world is, is such that we can't know the real world. Well, wait a minute, that's a statement about the real world. See, again, a brilliant guy, but it's a self-refuting argument. 
And this is the foundation by which postmodern is built on. This, it's a house of cards, you guys. Okay? So now, what is the result of this? The consequence to Immanuel Kant is devastating to Christianity. It's something called fideism. Now, I'm going to give you the definition again in this slide, but let me give it to you right up front. Fideism, everybody's heard of sola fide. That's faith alone. Fide is Latin for uh, faith. All right? So fideism was literally faithism. And it is the belief that we have no evidence for what we believe. We merely believe, we take a blind leap of faith when we come to Christ. There's no reasons. There's no evidence. It's a blind leap of faith. Because we can't have any evidence because we don't have access to reality. Why? Because Immanuel Kant said so. Okay? That's the result of Kant's arguments. All right? Since rationalist and empiricist philosophers and theologians were denying the truth claims of Christianity, Kant's view was looked on by many theologians as a way out. All right? Now, let me talk about that. Theologians, uh, there are two groups of theologians during this period of time. There are those who are saying, yes, we can't believe in these supernatural miracles anymore. We have to get rid of them. The rationalists and the empiricists are right. There can be no such thing as a resurrection. Okay? Now, there's other theologians who want to affirm the truth of the Bible, but they're feeling like they don't have the intellectual ammunition to do so. Okay? And so what they are is they are glad that Immanuel Kant comes on the scene because now nobody can know truth. Yeah, the rationalists don't have any idea. The empiricists don't have any idea. We don't either, but we just take a blind leap of faith and we believe in Christ. So you have your truth, we'll have our truth. You see, it's comforting to these people who feel that Christianity has been disproven by the empiricists and the rationalists. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, let me just put up another couple points here. Since no one can know reality, which is what Kant said, Christianity is as viable as any other religious or philosophical worldview. We don't have to fight it. We just say, hey, you know what? I can't know what's true. You can't know what's true. I'm just going to put my blind leap of faith in Christianity. All right? So that leads to fideism. And again, fide is Latin for faith. It teaches that we don't have reasons for our faith because, again, we can't know anyway. And therefore, we merely have blind faith. Now, I'm going to show you some names of people who held to fideism. One of them would be Soren Kierkegaard. Again, he taught that there was a radical disjunction between faith and reason. In fact, he would argue that anybody who tried to reason and prove the scriptures to somebody else was making a grave error, in fact, maybe sinning. Okay, why? You can't know truth anyway. You just take a blind leap of faith. Now, what's interesting is Kierkegaard actually held to some doctrines that you and I would hold to. He was fairly solid in the areas of theology. All right? But it gets worse as we go down in time. So, for instance, Karl Barth. Karl Barth, by the way, died in the 1960s. And he is one of those who are in the neo-Orthodox movement. Now, Karl Barth is also a fideist. He doesn't believe that there's evidence for what we, what we believe. And Karl Barth starts changing the doctrine of Scripture. He says the Bible becomes the Bible when we have an experience with the Holy Spirit with it. What I'm saying is the Bible is the Bible regardless. I may not ever have an experience with it. The Holy Spirit not, may not ever interact with me. But the Bible remains the Bible, the, the, which is the Word of God, whether I have an experience or not. It is the Word of God. All right, so he starts changing even the doctrine of the Word of God. Now, what gets really bad is today, our emergent leaders. These people are fideists as well. And what they have in common is this. They all believe we cannot know 
We must merely believe faith is irrational. So yes, Soren Kierkegaard had some solid doctrine, but by the time we get to the emergent leaders, we have Brian McLaren and men like that who don't believe in the substitutionary atonement. They don't believe in a literal hell. They believe Gandhi is a way to salvation every bit as much as Christ is, and they completely distort the Christian faith. Why? Because we can't know anyway. Christianity has become completely subjective. And so our blind leap of faith has done what? It's given us no evidence to define exactly what we believe. And that's why theism must be rejected wholeheartedly, but it's a direct consequence of Immanuel Kant and postmodernism. That's where it all comes from. Okay? Does that all make sense? I threw a lot at you guys, and we can talk more about it in the question and answer time. I tell you what, what I'm going to do is we're going to take a 10-minute break, and then we're going to talk about the theories of truth. I'm going to talk for about another 10 to 15 minutes, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how I, on the street, would prove to a postmodern that we can know truth. So I'm going to lay out the theories of truth. The reason why we must do this, friends, is because let's say you go out and you try to prove the existence of God, because I'm going to do that next week. And then later on you'll prove, in fact, to somebody that the Scriptures are inspired. And then you prove to somebody else that Jesus was raised from the dead. The worst feeling is coming up to somebody and they say, well, I don't even believe that truth exists. Well, then what do you do? That's why we've got to cover this, sadly. Friends, that's the predicament we're in. We have to cover it now. Do you see what I'm saying? So unfortunately, because of the shape our culture is in, we've got to do it. So I'm going to show you how we can whip these postmoderns with half our brains tied behind our back in a loving way. Okay? And we're, we're, we're doing it for the sake of their souls. Okay, so let's meet back in ten minutes.